Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Go back to John 8. So we have talked about, I'm just going to do a little bit of quick review because I'm serious about you understanding what are the basics of the keys of what you need to understand about being a disciple. Four things, four things it takes to become a disciple. And then we're going to go through all the characteristics of a disciple, which will help you understand as I see those characteristics of a disciple, that's where these four things plug in. That's where these four things apply. Denying the old nature choosing to take up now what I know is God's will, and continuing my companionship with Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, real quick, as we've already been talking about Matthew 16, 24, as well as Luke's account in relationship to what Jesus said a disciple, obviously has to do four things. Number one, what's the first thing? Desire to be like Jesus. You got a desire to be like him. Without that desire, Jesus said it, anyone desires... To come after me, that's to be like him, be a disciple. Then we go to step two. What's the second one? What are we denying? The old self-nature. We're denying the old fleshly carnal self-nature of what obviously our flesh wants to do that would hinder us from being a disciple. And I'll guarantee you, your flesh will work at hindering you from being a disciple. So you got to deal with that and continue to press through, get beyond that fleshly nature. Then number three, you got to do what? Take up what is God's will for your life now. Amen? You and I have to now take up what is God's plan, God's will, what he wants for us, which is what we do, walking our lives out as a disciple of Jesus Christ. As we learn about what Jesus tells us, relating in our lives to what we know a disciple is and what a disciple does, we start applying those things. We start putting application to them as we talked about. And then number four, excuse me, Make sure that you are becoming and or remaining a companion, a close, uh, obviously, friend in relationship to Jesus Christ. Become a companion of Jesus Christ. I'm going to obey God here. I'm going to go, first of all, hold your place there in John 8. I'm going to go to Matthew for just a moment, if you would. Matthew, I want to show you something here real quick, a couple things, but I want to go to Matthew for just a second. Verse 36. You know, in dealing with the, the denial of the old self-nature, what's one of the things, because obviously... In doing that, are there, are there things that the Bible teaches us that would help us to deal with overcoming our old self-nature? Yes. Yes, there is. One of the greatest things you have is called prayer. Prayer. Jesus reveals this in relationship to die, denying that old self-nature. In Matthew 26, if you're there, say amen. This is where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we talked about when he denied his will and chose the will of the Father, notice what he did. Jesus came to the very place called Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, sit here while I go, go and pray over there. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Why? He knows he's about to be separated from the Father. He's never experienced that before. Never known what that was like. Verse 38. So he said to them, my soul. What, what was he talking about here? His soul. Mind, will, and emotions. 
So obviously he did not have a fallen nature, but he still had a soul to deal with. What got Eve in trouble in the garden? Her soul did. She didn't listen to her spirit. She listened to her soul. She began to look at the tree and her soul began to say, wow, that looks like some really good fruit. I think it might not be so bad to be as wise as God. So maybe I should eat of this fruit. If she'd have listened to her spirit, that would have never happened. So in verse 38, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Do what? Stay here and watch with me. So what is he doing here? Now, he didn't have an old self-nature, but he's denying his own self-will to not walk out what he obviously would want to walk out, but what the Father wanted. So he goes a little farther. He fell on his face and he prayed. And he said, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but what? As you will. will." Verse 40, he came back to the disciples and he found them what? Sleeping. And he said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? Now, I'm grateful that I don't have a lot of sleepers in my church. But I will tell you, if you can't make it to a church service one hour, you're probably going to have a tough time (laughs) overcoming stuff in prayer and dealing with things in prayer. Could you not watch with me one hour? 41, watch and do what? Underline that. Watch and pray. Listen to what he said. So he's come back to his disciples. They're sleeping. What does he say? Watch and pray. Watch and pray lest you what? Enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is what? What's the temptation here? Huh? No, what's the temptation that he is talking about overcoming here? What's he, what's he tempted to do here? To walk out his own will, not the will of the Father. For me and you, that temptation is what? Walking in light of the old self nature and not in the light of who we now are in Christ. Right? Like when you want to punch somebody, like when you don't want to hug somebody, like when you don't want to love somebody that's obviously not real lovable. Right? So we don't want to walk in relationship to our old self-nature and do what it wants to do. Uh, it's like the short story I shared with you this morning about Dr. Lester Summerall. He didn't want to hug that guy, kiss him on the cheek. But guess what? His spirit had no problem with it. It's his old self-nature. So notice this. He said, he gave us a powerful clue here. He said, watch and pray lest you, lest you enter the temptation. What is the primary thing Satan's going to tempt you to do? Now, most would say sin. Most would say sin. But you know what? Sin is not how he first tempts you. It's not what James says. James says he tempts you with your own desires. He don't tempt you with a sin. He tempts you with a desire of the old nature. And if you give in to that temptation, the Bible says, now you conceive of that desire in your heart. And then as you act it out, you do what? Now you fall into sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Being tempted to give in to that old self nature is not a sin. It's giving in to that temptation. So he said here, what was Satan tempting him with? Uh, the, The ability to walk away from God's will and to choose his will instead. So he said, you and I are to watch and pray lest we enter in temptation. So what's the temptation here? To give in to our old fleshly nature. This is a key of how we can walk out denying that old self nature. Notice what he says at the bottom of that verse. Look at that. The spirit indeed is what? Willing. Tell me out loud. Willing, Willing but what? The flesh is. See, your spirit doesn't want to do what's wrong. Your flesh does. And the flesh is what? Weak. If I give in to the flesh, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk in weakness, and I'm going to give in to the temptation. 
He goes away again a second time. Verse 42, prayed again. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 41 is how you learn to deal with and overcome the old self-nature. Watch and pray. Now, watch here for them. Well, so just think of the situation. He goes and prays for an hour. He comes back, and he finds Peter, James, and John doing what? And he wakes them up. And what's the first words? Watch. What's that mean? You got to pay attention, boys. You got to pay attention and understand that you are having an opportunity right now to learn from me of what I'm dealing with, and you're over here sleeping. You need to watch and pay attention to your life. I'm going to talk about this tonight because what I'm going to talk about tonight in the second attribute of a disciple is something that a lot of Christians think would never happen to them, but the Bible says it is happening to many. Yes. Why? They're not watching. That's right. They're not paying attention. You got to watch and pay attention to what the enemy and what Jesus warns us about that the enemy will do to try to get us to walk away from being a disciple. And that don't happen just in one instant decision. He suddenly, totally, uh, he suddenly begins to work on us to bring us to a place of totally walking away. But it begins with a subtle decision to all of a sudden start giving in to the old self-nature. So what did he say to do? Watch and also do what? Pray. Now, what do you mean pray? God, please deliver me from the temptation. No. No, he didn't say deliver me from the temptation, Lord. What was he doing? He was talking to the Father, getting clear what the Father's will was so that he wouldn't give in to obviously what it was his will instead of the Father's will, right? Because he asked him the question, is there any other way? Right. right, nothing wrong with asking. But if there's not, I'm willing to do your will. So this is fellowship with the Father. Say fellowship with the Father. Let me tell you where you're going to get a lot of strength in your life to overcome the old fleshly nature. Fellowship with the Father. Learning how to pray. Well, I don't know how to pray. You need to learn. You need to learn. What's one of the easiest ways to pray in relationship to the Father? Pray in the Holy Spirit. Now go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'm going to tie back to that in just a minute of what you just read. I want you to see this for tonight. Because the problem is when you start going through characteristics of a disciple, and especially with people that maybe are already one or think they are, and many are, all of a sudden we think that there's no way we could ever drift away from that or ever be drawn back. I'll guarantee you, I've talked to a lot of believers in my life. I used to tell people, that'll never happen to me. It's a good statement, but you know what? It won't if you do what Jesus said and you pay attention and guard yourself against what could draw you away. Do you know how many ministers have fallen who said, that would never happen to me? Great ministers. I get it. Some of you are looking at me like, that'll never happen to me. I'm going to tell you what. Dr. Barclay, Kenneth Hagin, John Osteen, Lester Sumrall said, man, I know guys that fell that I never thought would have fallen. I knew them personally, not like just know about them. They knew these people. And I never would have thought it would have happened, ever to them, ever, never, ever. All it did is it alerted to me, I better pay attention to these temptations and make sure that I'm not allowing that to happen to me. Could I get a better amen? There is nobody above being tempted or drawn away from what the Bible talks about of being a disciple. And we're going to see that tonight. So we've got to guard against it. John 8, 31 and 32. First characteristic, we've already touched on it. To be a disciple. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you what? Abide in my word. You are my disciples indeed. You will then what? What will you do? You'll know the truth and the truth will do what? So really simple. If I abide in the word... Obviously, John 15 and his words abiding in me, coming alive in me. How does that happen? Application. Yes, sir. Learning it, developing understanding of it. That's who I am. I start walking that out. I come to know the truth through experience yes. by application. 
By application, I now know the truth. And by application, what does that truth do? Sets you free. James, James 1 told you the same thing. If you're not a hearer only, but a doer of the word, right? You're not going to forget who you were. And you're going to continue to what? Walk in victory over that old fleshly nature. So the first characteristic of a disciple, you got to abide in God's, God's word. Now, obviously, that certainly means to live in it, but that means to get it alive in you. And the truth is, if you want to simplify the statement about abiding in God's word, that means that you live in it and it lives in you. Amen? And that's a good statement right there, uh, Linda. You are one with the word of God. Amen? Luke 14. Luke 14. So let's go to the next characteristic or attribute of what a disciple is. And then I want to share some things with you back over in Matthew about this. That we got to understand clearly if we think, uh, you know, I used to tell people all the time, that'll never happen to me, that'll never happen to me, that And I started saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to make sure I do what's necessary right. to guard my life so that doesn't happen. Right. My pastor tells me all the time, he said, I know people all the time in my church and ministers and other people said that would never happen. He said, I don't say that. I say, you know what? I'm going to guard my life. Here's his way of, dealing, uh, of saying it. Ready? Deal with yourself. No matter who you are, you got to deal with yourself and realize you are just as prone to the temptations in this world as every other believer is. And to think you're not or think that Satan's not going to tempt you and try. And the thing of it is, you know, you got to realize this. And again, we don't try to give Satan credit for aspects of saying he's really good at something. But let me help you. He's a good tempter. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing it a long time. So we got to make sure we're ready to counter that. Amen. Luke 14, we start picking up some other attributes of a disciple. We're going to look at the second one here. It's going to happen in one verse. Luke 14, we're going to look at verses 25 and 26. 25, great multitudes went with him, Jesus, and he turned and he said to those multitudes, if anyone, so once again, you can see over and over and over again, who has the ability to become a disciple? Anyone. Anyone. If anyone does what comes to me. So the first phrase comes to him in this context is actually referring to what? To receive him, to be born again, salvation. You certainly can't become a disciple if you don't know Jesus in the sense of what a true disciple is. So if anyone comes to me, comes and receives him, comes and, and, and enters into relationship with him, watch this, and does not hate. Wow. And does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, underline it, and his own life also. Notice this. He cannot be what? Wow, cannot be my disciple. Well, pastor, I didn't think we were supposed to hate people. The phrase there, of course, is not real good in any of the, in any of the actual English translations. The word there is to love less. To love less. We're going to see an example of this in the book of Matthew. But in interesting, the context of the, of, the, uh, of the people that he mentions in this verse. Read it again. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate who? Father. Next, mother. Who else? Wife. Wait a minute. Children. Who else? Brothers and sisters. And who else? Their own life also. Because you know who has a more profound effect on your life. Getting in between you and Jesus and anybody else? Family members. Family members. Because that's who we obviously are the most close to in most cases. And therefore more easily influenced by them. And this is what he's warning us about. Now, of course, it would go beyond just family members. But he's just saying, if you come to Jesus and you don't love your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and your own life less than you love Jesus. 
What are you not? You're not his disciple. Number two, write it down. We're going to see this in multiple verses. What's the second characteristic of a disciple? Jesus is his first love. Jesus is his first love. What must be my first love in my life? Jesus must be. Jesus must be. If Jesus is my first love, guess what does not determine whether I fellowship with God, whether I go to church, whether I do the things that are just a part of... Uh, it wasn't, wasn't Pastor, Pastor uh, Barclay's message, one of our pastor's message so powerful? Simple stuff, man. Think about stuff you do every day. Breathing in and out. Drinking water. Huh? Eating food. You do it all the time without thinking about it. How come we can't just walk through the basics of Christianity that way? And I've watched all my life as a pastor, I've seen people just like Jesus talked about make all kinds of excuses why they can't make church, why they don't have time for men's meetings, why they don't have time to be able to develop as a disciple and to continue to take time to develop in relationship to a prayer life, the Word of God, which is all about relationship with God. And I'll guarantee you those, those, uh, those excuses are many, but oftentimes tied to family. So as it relates to family, should my father or mother determine whether I do any of those things or not? No. Should my wife or husband determine that? You don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I'd come to church, but my wife don't come. What does that have to do with you? Well, my husband doesn't come. What does that have to do with you? (laughs) Amen? I've had people say, well, I would come, but my kids don't want to come. Number one, let me help you with that. Your kids, first of all, should not be left at home when you go to church. You're supposed to set an example. You know, people tell me, well, I don't force my kids to do anything. I bet you force them to go to school. (laughs) How many many kids like going to school? I'll tell you what, there's a lot of kids would rather be at home than be at school. But you know what your parents tell you all the time? You're going to school. Now, if you're going to force them to go to school, see, people think, but for some reason, and this is just the devil, to force kids to go to church, all of a sudden we're forcing Christianity on them. No, you're not. You're not forcing them to go to an altar and pray. You're not forcing them to give their life to Jesus. You don't want to do that. You want God to deal with their hearts. Right? But if you don't take them to church, guess what they're missing out on? They're missing out on multiple things. Train up a child in the way he shall go. As he gets older, he'll not depart from it. Right? It's like the story Pastor had about the guy who grew up in his church. When he started coming to his church, his boy was like maybe three, two, three years old, very small. And as he got older and then he turned 18, he stopped coming to church. And this guy came to Pastor and he said, Pastor, I don't understand it. I raised my boy in church. He turns 18, boom, he's ditched church and God and everything. He's gone. He said, I don't understand why he did that. And he said, well, I don't know if you can handle the truth or not about why he did that. He said, no, I want to know. He said, you caused it. Huh? I raised him in the church. I've watched you. You've been here since he was a little boy. You know what you've done all your life with your son? I'll tell you what you've done all, li- all your life with your son. If he had a baseball game on a Sunday, you went to the baseball game. Right. If he had a football game, you took him to the football game. You did church all the time for other things that you wanted to go do that were more important to you than, to, you know, developing your relationship with God. You know what you're taught your son? If there's something more important to you, son, than going to God's house, go do it. Right. You trained him in that. You trained him in that. Well, what should I do? If I was young, get on my face before God, repent, and ask God to turn his heart around. And you know what? God did. God did. God dealt with him. He began to pray. began to pray for his son. God dealt with his son, and some time later, he came back to the church. He got back into into fellowship with God. He actually wound up meeting a, a Christian gal, got married, had kids, and doing good. Praise God. 
Actually, I think he even went into the ministry. But see, you got to understand, there should be no aspect of what I do in my life, relationship to other people, or even what I want, that's going to be above what God wants for my life. If Jesus is my first love, guess who comes first? Jesus does. Go to Matthew 10. Now, I'll, I'll show you a verse that will help you with this to understand it better in Matthew's account of exactly what he's saying here. If you go to Matthew chapter 10, I will show you this. So Jesus must be our first love. Now, I want to explain something real quick, and I'm going to show you another verse in Matthew in just a second about this. Just because if he is your first love, just because he is doesn't mean he's going to stay that way. Right? Right? I said, right? Yeah. You got to recognize again that just because he is your first love doesn't mean he'll stay that way. And don't ever think that you may not ever have a temptation to want to draw away from him as being your first love because the way Satan does it, again, is so sly and so subtle. Most Christians don't even realize it's going on. But we can be aware of it. I mean, you know, the Bible says that a wise man sees trouble coming and prepares. So what we're to be in a context of a wise man is we're to see what temptations could come our way to cause us to lose Jesus as our first love and prepare so that we don't give in to that. If you don't prepare, I promise you, you're much more susceptible to being deceived and taken advantage of. Matthew chapter 10, you still with me? Well, why am I in the book of Mark? I don't know why I turned to Mark 10. That don't work. Matthew 10. <laughs> Look at that verse. Say, well, that ain't Matthew. Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 10. Look at this, verse 34. Look at these statements Jesus made here. And anytime you read stuff like this and you kind of scratch your head, what is he really saying? Like, hate your father and mother. You know, he clearly tells us we're not to hate people. So we know we got to dig a little further to figure out what exactly is he saying there. But this kind of gives a better, clearer understanding of what he was saying over in Luke's account. Matthew chapter 10, 34. Do not think, Jesus said. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. What? You didn't come to bring peace. Wait a minute. The angels pronounced that you came to bring peace. Notice what it said. I did not come to bring peace on what? On earth. Doesn't mean there's not peace here with God available on earth. What does it mean I didn't come to bring peace on earth? Ecumenical. Meaning what? In the, in the outer part of what you live in relationship to other people. Are you going to walk in a perfect peace with everybody else? No. He's going to show you, if you walk with God, if you are godly, guess what you're going to suffer? Persecution. Well, that ain't peace with other people. That ain't peace with the world. If you walk with God, guess what? The world is enmity against you. You listening? Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he explains, verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, that's not true of every family. He's just saying this is going to happen in some situations where people truly understand why I came. And they want to make me their first love and receive what I have for them. Well, guess what? Not all their family members are going to be in agreement with that. How many of you had family members that thought you're a nut because you're a believer? Watch this, verse 37. He who loves, though, father or mother. So here's the more accurate statement. Not hate. Notice, he who loves father or mother more than me. So that's the same phrase as that you have to hate your father and mother, brother. You can't be my disciple. So here's the actual statement of what you just read over there being revealed here more accurately. He who loves father or mother more than me is what? Not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not what? Worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross 
and follow after me is not what? Worthy of me. What's taking up your cross? Walking out God's will. In these verses, what is God's will? Jesus must be my first love. Are you still here? And then verse 39 says, he who finds his life is going to do what? Lose it. If you find your life, what's that mean? You're doing what you want. But if you lose your life for my sake, his sake, what will you do? You'll find true life. Now, I'm sorry, folks. I've had every excuse given to me again. I've had people say, well, you know, I have a, a boy or I have a daughter. They're now involved in sports. They play on Sundays. I won't be in church anymore. Do you correct them, Pastor? Not if they're not submitted to me. How do you know they're not submitted to me? I'll tell you how. They didn't ask me, what do you think about it? They didn't ask what I thought. They just told me what they're going to do. You know what that tells me? They're not submitted to me. They don't want to know my opinion. Is this good or bad? Can I give you an answer from Jesus? It ain't good. I said it ain't good. Yeah, but my son, my daughter, you know, my grandkids, man, come on. I want to go see him play baseball. I want to go see him play basketball. Why do you think the world has gone to playing all these sports on Sundays? Why do you think? We were were coming back one year from Straight Talk down through uh, Tennessee, and I think we were actually in Arkansas at the time. I can't remember where, somewhere in there. And as we're driving down the interstate, I look over to the left. Here's these massive ball fields, baseball fields. I mean, nicer than any high school field, baseball field I ever saw. And they're just little league baseball fields. And they were, this is a Sunday. We're coming home. We're driving home from the meetings. And the place is packed. Kids everywhere. Anybody ever seen this like in soccer fields on Sundays, etc.? Let me tell you what, folks. You have a choice to say, well, it does better when I go to church. Well, I guarantee you, if you ditch church on Sunday to go to your kid's game, do you really tell me that you're going other times? Probably not. I said probably not. If you honestly think that's more important than raising your kids in the things of God, well, I want my kids to play sports. Fine. Put your foot down and say, okay, but we're not going to compromise walking with God for that. Are you kidding me? Well, they might turn professional. Well, let me help you. If they're not walking with God and they turn professional, you're even in more trouble. Not less. I will assure you. You know, I came out of, again, the rodeo world. Well, guess when most rodeos are? They're on the weekends. This is why Coy Huffman answered a call of God to start doing church services on Sundays at, at, uh, at, at rodeos so that these cowboys would have a church service to go to. Amen. Hear the word of God taught. And I'll guarantee you, if, if that's where you're going to make your living, you're going to be gone a lot of Sundays. I tell people this all the time. If you truly know without a doubt God called you to that, you better be one severe believer to walk with God, especially in the day you're living in, to be able to ditch church all the time. You listening? Because the Bible tells me you're not to forsake assembling. You're not to forsake church. Even so much more as you see the day approaching. Right? Say, I cannot love anybody more than Jesus and be his disciple. Now, I'm going to tell you why. Because if you love somebody more than Jesus, guess who's really discipling you? The one you love more. The one you love more. How can he, how can he disciple you when you don't love him more than anybody else? Well, he's not going to because you're going to do what? You're going to cater to the other one you love more than you are to Jesus. And then when Jesus starts trying to challenge you and help change you, guess what? You're probably not going to do those things either because you've not made him your first love. So again, notice this very carefully. He says that those of, verse 36, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Meaning what? There will be those who get born again and their family won't, won't be born again and they won't agree. They won't like it. Anybody been there? 
You know, I'm grateful today to say that all of my family left on the planet knows Jesus. Amen. I'm so glad. But there was a time, man, that my dad thought I was a kook. My mom thought I was nuts. Amen. My brother was like the only one that understood because he's the one that took me to Coy's meeting when I got born again. But man, they all thought I was nuts. I remember my mama now in heaven. I remember my mama one time talking to Kathy on the phone. She had called to talk to me. I wasn't there right at the moment. This was pre-cell phone days. Right. Remember those days? Right. We had a phone on the wall. <laughs> remember what they looked like? Yeah. Might need to see a picture again. Right? I love the little video. They literally did it. They took some two young boys and they, you know, fairly, I'd say like probably preteens, you know, 10, 12, something like that. They showed them a dial phone, rotary phone. Yeah. What's that? And they said, now make a phone call with that. They could not figure it out. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> so I, one day we got a call. I wasn't there. My mom was calling for me and she talks to Kathy. And she gets to talking to Kathy, she said, as they started talking, she said, you know, every time I talk to him, all he wants to do is talk about Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't start that conversation about Jesus. I mean, whatever she talks about, I got obviously something from the Bible that I could, you know, in process of what we're talking about, explain or add to that or whatever. And she said, he just talks to me like he's a preacher. <laughs> I love what Kathy said. Well, that's what he is. <laughs> that's what he does. Amen? Now, she changed her opinion later on after she got born again. But I'm here to tell you, folks, I don't care how much, quote, unquote, I love my mom. I love my mom. I love my dad. I love him dearly. But I'm not going to love him more than Jesus. I'll tell you one of the greatest examples of this. This was, this was a great example of what I'm trying to explain to you about being a disciple. I'm not even in the ministry yet, of course. Kathy and I had just actually got engaged, getting married. And now during our wedding, my dad comes over here. My dad had worked for years to actually raise up a business that he was actually part, uh, actually uh, running and wanted me to take it over. Yep. Very successful business. And so I thought, man, what an opportunity. You know, why not? I would have to move to New Mexico for a period of months for him to train me, show me everything to do. And actually some of his accounts were here in Texas. Once I got trained, I could go wherever I wanted. Didn't matter where I was. But I thought, man, this is a six-figure income of a business that, you know, is a very good business. Why would I not want to do that, right? right. But I'm now walking with God. <clears throat> I'd heard God, this is my wife. So here we are getting married, and I told my dad before he came, all right, I'll take the job. That'd be a good deal for us to, you know, start into. And I told Kathy, I said, I know it might be a little tough because you're going to be moving away from your family because all her family was here, <clears throat> but it'll just be for a handful of months till we're, you know, get to a place where I can take over the business and move. So we talked about it and stuff. She didn't say anything much more about it. And we kind of just discussed it and put it aside. And my dad showed up. But you know what? I started praying about it. <clears throat> right. Hadn't prayed about it yet. So then I started praying about it. Guess what I did not have? I had no peace. The more I prayed about it, the more agitation I got. And you know what? I learned enough at that point from Brother Hagin about following the inward witness. If you got an agitation, this ain't God. Right. You want to know how hard it was for me? Two days before I got married to sit down with my dad and say, Dad, I'm going to tell you something. I love you. I know you set all this up for me. I know you got a place for me to come. I know you got everything prepared for me to take over this company. And I know you really want to see that happen, see one of your sons take it over. My brother didn't want it. But I got to tell you something. I can't do it. That would be one thing if you said I can't do it because I got a better opportunity here. You know what my dad would have said? Go for it. He wouldn't have been upset at all. But you know what I had to tell him? You know I can't come? God won't let me. Excuse me? My dad was not born again yet. Right. But I'm not going to lie to him. 
I'm not going to say, well, I can't come because I don't want to, or I just can't come, I can't tell you why. No, I can't come because I've been praying about it. God won't let me come. He said, I don't understand that, son. I said, I knew you wouldn't, and I realize this is difficult for you to understand, but I'm just telling you, I cannot come and take that job. Seven months later, God birthed this church. Amen. I wouldn't have been here. I'd have been in New Mexico. Learning how to go into a business that God didn't want me to be in. Are you listening? That was difficult. My dad wasn't real happy about that. Now, obviously, I'm a little older than what he used to have access to to be able to whip me or whatever. But I tell you, that, that created some real you know, division between me and my dad. The, those enemies will be of your own household. So this didn't go well with my father for quite some time. Matter of fact, we didn't talk for a long time. And then after that, God began to show me how to pray about that, and I did, and God turned that whole situation around. And then there was a time I went and did a wedding for a stepsister of mine, and when I went to do the wedding, I got an opportunity to pull my dad aside and said, man, I've been wanting to talk to you about this for a long time. This was a few years later. I said, I really want to talk to you about knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus. He said, oh, I'm born again. I said, when did that happen? (laughs) He, He said, that happened a couple years ago. I said, why didn't you tell me? I said, what happened? Well, he happened to know somebody in San Antonio that when he was there with his business, doing business and stuff, he would go and just see him, and they were friends, and they'd get together, and they'd take him to church. And I found out it was John Hagee's church. Gave his life to Jesus, got born again. Guess what my dad does every Sunday now? He goes to church. Isn't God good? But see, for a long time, that wasn't good between me and him. I had a choice, gentlemen. I had a choice, ladies. I had a choice to make. What was the choice? Do I love Jesus more than I love my father? Amen. That was not an easy thing to do. I'll guarantee you that was a difficult thing for me to do. But I love Jesus more than I love... I didn't know why. God didn't say, don't go and here's why. I just had no peace about going. <clears throat> and then I turned to Kathy and I said, have you had a peace about this? Well, no. Well, why didn't you say anything? Well, I didn't want to ruin your expectation of what God, you know, what you had available and stuff. So I just didn't want to say nothing. I said, well, man, I'm glad you're obviously telling me now, but neither one of us had a piece about it. So those of his own household could even be what enemies are opposed to him. Opposed to him. If you're going to walk out what God has for you, not everybody, even in your family, is going to like your decisions. You got a choice, though. What's, what's it like to be a disciple? Live like Jesus lived. But to do that, what has Jesus got to be? My first love. Verse 37 again, you can't love father, mother more than me. If you do, you're not worthy of me. You can't love your son or daughter more than me. Sorry, ball games don't, don't count. That's right. Yeah, but I want to spend time with my son. I get it. I want to spend time with my daughter. I get it. But you know what? You can do that in other things other than going to a ball game. Come on. How about in church? Yeah. Right? And I would be telling my son or daughter, uh, you need to be in church. That's right. Amen. Praise the Lord. I said, praise the Lord. Now, I want you to look at this. Go to Matthew 24. <clears throat> and then we'll go over to uh, Revelation 2 and give us some results about how we can make sure that we guard against this. But I want to show you this. In Matthew 24, if you understand the Gospels and what Jesus taught us in the four Gospels, this is Matthew's account of Jesus talking about the last days. Now, this covers everything from the disciples that he's about to leave behind, what would happen to them, they're going to be martyred for their faith. He tells them this. But not only that, which they didn't, of course, understand it at the time, but not only that, he talks about the time that would come before the tribulation. He talks about the tribulation period. And then he talks about what would come after the tribulation period. 
Jesus talked more about the end times in, one, in context of the setting of the Gospels than anybody else did trying to put everything else together. And in these end time context statements, he says here, I want you to see this, very important, Matthew 24, 4, first words out of his mouth to his disciples. He answered and said to them, take heed, well, let me show you what he was answering, okay? Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be, talking about the temple. They had left the temple, he said, this temple's coming down, but when's that going to happen? When's that going to take place? What will be the sign of your coming? So when you come back, what's the sign? What's the sign that we know that that will happen? And what will actually be the end of the ages? That's the end of all things. So talking about when will these things be, that's the destruction of the temple and what's going to happen to them in their lifetime. When he talks about the sign of his coming, he's talking about coming back to rapture the church. And then when he talked about the end of the age, that's the end of all things. After he raptures the church from the planet, then he's going to come back and rule and reign for a thousand years, right? And deal with Satan once and for all. Amen. Say glory to, God. glory to God. So then he says in verse, notice in answering their questions in verse 4, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth. He answered and said to them, take heed that what? No, no. Tell me out loud, please. No, so let me tell you one of the number one ways Satan uses people to deceive you. You ready? Yes. Love them more than you love Jesus. Yeah. Be more devoted to them than you are to Jesus. See, a lot of people just think deception here would only mean somebody try to obviously teach me something wrong, mislead me. Well, they are trying to teach you something wrong. They're trying to teach you to do things that are obviously clearly against what Jesus said is necessary to be a disciple and walk in victory as a child of God. And that means to do what? Love somebody more than you love him. Yeah. Most people aren't doing it. My dad was not intentionally trying to pull me away from God. He just didn't know any better. So understand, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth, you take heed. Do what? Tell me out loud, please. Now, if he told his disciples that, that they've been with him three and a half years, how much more should you and I not have to take heed? So we don't want to just go about saying, well, this will never happen to me. Let me help you. Take heed. Take heed and say, I'm going to do what's necessary to protect my life, to guard my life from these people deceiving me or misleading me. Amen? amen? I said amen? Yeah. Drop down a little farther, please, for the sake of time. Notice this. Verse 12. Watch this. Because lawlessness will abound. What will abound? <clears throat> Think about that statement. Think about that statement. He's talking about the end times. Because right after this, he goes into the great tribulation. So he's talking about what's going to happen right before this great tribulation occurs. He says that lawlessness will what? Abound. There won't be a little bit of it, folks. There'll be a lot of it. Watch this. Watch this. I don't like it, but it's in the Bible. You can't change it. Watch this. The love of a few will grow cold. Excuse me? Tell me out loud. Now, there's multiple things to be said about this. I'm going to try to get through this as quick as I can because I got to get to this last set of verses tonight. Watch this. Because lawlessness will abound. So there's, the, there's the, what's causing the problem. Because lawlessness abound, what will be the result? The love of many will grow cold. What will cause the love of many to grow cold? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. How many are going to grow cold? How many, how many, how many, will there, how many of those who, who are walking with Jesus, will their love grow cold? Well, your love can't grow cold unless you were once truly in love with Jesus. Right? This isn't saying, well, all of a sudden nobody will love Jesus. No, it's talking about people who once truly loved him. So we're talking disciples. We're talking to people that were walking close with Jesus. 
Jesus said, the love of many will grow cold. You know what that means? They'll leave their first love. And most of them won't even think they have. Are you listening? Why? They're deceived. That's what deception does to you. Another thing about this statement, the love of many will do what? Grow. 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 I know we see our kids, we say, wow, they don't stay a little long. It doesn't really seem like they do, right? But it takes a while to grow, don't it? Well, guess what? It takes a little while to grow cold. It's not an instant thing. It's not like Texas. Wake up tomorrow and it's, you know, 18 degrees and wake up the next day and it's 60. It's not that quick. It don't happen that fast. Are you listening? This growing cold, the statement to grow cold is a slow progressive work in which we all of a sudden don't realize we begin to make ourselves or other people more important to us than Jesus to where Jesus is no longer our first love. You listening? But what was the cause of that? Lawlessness. Lawlessness is the cause of people's love growing cold. So now we've got to answer the question, what is lawlessness? So lawlessness is defined in two ways here from the context of the Greek language of that word. Lawlessness refers to a disregard for God's law or God's word. If you all of a sudden lose a disregard for God's law, how would we lose a disregard for God's law? Let me, let me better state that. Let me better state that. How would I know I've lost a disregard for God's law. How would I know that? You're not doing it. <clears throat> exactly right. You don't do it because you have to. If you do it because you have to, it ain't going to benefit you. Right? But how do I know that I now have a disregard for God's law? God's law here is not referring to the Ten Commandments. The lawlessness he's referring to, very clear. You can study this out for yourself in the Greek. This isn't referring to the Old Testament law. This isn't referring to the Ten Commandments. This is referring to God's word himself, which is a law, which is a good thing. Because if God's, if God's word was not a law, then it could change. And things could change it. Right? It's like a law of gravity. Well, guess what? You ain't changing it. Get up on a roof. I tried it one time. Get up on a roof when I was a kid. Jump off. See if you can fly. It ain't going to work. You're going to hit the ground. Why? Law of gravity is there. It's going to kick in every time. So the fact that God's word is a law is a good thing. Here's why. You want to know why? It works every time for those who work it. It works every time. God's word doesn't work for me. You're not doing it right. It's a law. It's a spiritual law. There's what's known as the law of lift. Right, Sheffield? If you apply certain aspects of what's necessary to cause a law of lift, you know what happens? You fly. Orville and Wilbur found that out. And now people are flying all over the planet because of what? The law of lift. It works every time. Well, guess what established all those natural laws in the world? God's word did. Guess what God's word is? It's a law. Not like some law that, boy, if you violate it, God's mad at you, going to throw you in the hooskow. No. If you don't know what hooskow is, that's a jail, by the way. It's a good Texas term, though. He's going to throw you in the hooskow, meaning what? You're going to get locked up? No, he's not going to do that. He's saying that his word is a specific law stating it doesn't change. Remember what the Bible said? Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. So if all of a sudden I have a disregard for the word of God, that's lawlessness. Disregard meaning what? Here's the way people say it a lot of times if you show them something black and white in the Bible. They'll do it one of two ways. Well, you know the Bible says this. Well, I know the Bible says that. Watch out. Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Well, if you know the Bible said something relating to how you're supposed to live your life to walk with God and experience what God has for your life, why would you put the butt in there? You wouldn't unless you want to do it different. Unless you don't want to do what God said. 
correct? But there's another actual context to this word that needs to be brought out in the word lawlessness. It's referred to in two ways. One, a disregard for God's law, the word. Two, you ready? Ignorance of God's law, God's word. They both apply. What's lawlessness? Lawlessness here is a disregard for God's word, the law, the, the context of what is a rule, in essence, or to do what? Be ignorant of it. You know how many Christians are ignorant of the truth about Scripture, about being a disciple? Well, if you're ignorant of the truth of God's word about being a disciple, what will be the result? The love of that individual growing cold. Thus said Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So what do I got to make sure I'm not doing? Use, losing a disre, uh, uh, gaining a disregard, disrespect for the word of God. Don't let that happen. And don't be ignorant of what it tells you to do. Can I get a better amen? So how do we guard against it? Well, go to Revelation, and it'll show you just the opposite here. Go to the book of Revelation with me. Chapter 2. Ooh, Revelation. No, it's not like that spooky. Revelation chapter 2. Turn there. Revelation 2. So these are, which we've touched on many times. I even did a series one time about the seven letters to the seven churches. Why? Because we're still a part of the, quote unquote, we're still a part of the church age. We're under what's known as the church age. And as long as the church age is in effect, all that was written to these churches also would apply to us. They would help us. They would bring understanding to us. These letters weren't just written for these specific six churches. They were also written so that you and I could gain understanding or admonition from them. Amen? So in Revelation chapter 2, we have the very first letter written to the very first church, which is the church at Ephesus. Who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus? Anybody know? Timothy was. Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Look at this. Revelation 2, 1. The, to the angel... Of the church at Ephesus. Now that is a horrible mistranslation in almost every context of the English scriptures that reveal here what was actually being said. The word is messenger. Messenger. It's not an angel like God sent an angel. There's not an angel sitting at the church that he's sending the message to. If there was an angel that he sent the message to, if that, if that angel doesn't appear to them, they're not going to have any idea what that message was. Every scholar will tell you, the phrase here, to the angel of the church at Ephesus means what? To the messenger. Who's the messenger? The pastor. To the messenger, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, right? Because if the pastor don't know what the letter said, how could he then share this with the congregation? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, understand this. The, the seven lampstands actually represent these seven different churches that he's writing to. Verse 2, I know your works. Now, listen to all the things he says here. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot, cannot bear those who are evil. So that's a good thing. Notice, and you have tested those who say they're apostles. But they're not. You found them to be liars. You've even exposed some false apostles that have come through your church. Yep. Verse 3, you've even persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So at this point, can we not say these people were truly in love with Jesus? I said at this point, can we not say these people were truly in love with Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. But guess what happened? Their love grew cold. Their love grew cold. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. 
So this doesn't mean they're still doing all those things. No, it means they had. I can assure you from the letters of what we see written to Timothy that this was a very, a very good and powerful church when it first started. But guess what they're not now anymore? They're not walking with Jesus as their first love. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've what? Left your first love. 5, what should we do about that? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Fallen. You were once up here. I, I was your first love. We were close. You were hot for God. But now you have slowly grown what? You have slowly grown cold and you've now fallen from that position. I'm no longer your first love. You need to remember from where you've fallen, do what? Repent, which simply means do what? Acknowledge where you've wound up and turn around. Yes. Repent and do what? Underline it. Do the first works. Yes. What's the answer if Jesus isn't my first love anymore? More importantly, what's the answer to make sure he remains my quote-unquote first love? Keep doing the first works. We're going to explain that in a minute. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove your lampstand. From its place, unless you want repent. Removing the lampstand here means he's going to remove the church. He'll basically saying that I'll take your pastor and I'll move him on because he can't help you guys anymore. I'm not your first love. So how could he help you? Whatever he tells you, you're not going to receive it because I'm not your first love. You're not, I'm not, you're not my disciples. So again, verse, notice this, verse 6. But he goes on to say, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They still did. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, as we've talked about before, had everything to do with taking what was actually pagan, paganistic uh, uh, rites and celebrations and mixing it with the things of God that were godly. Nicholas was one of the first deacons in, book, in the book of Acts. Chapter 4. He was one of those first deacons established. But Nicholas lost Jesus as his first love, and he went astray. Have you ever heard the term uh, nickname? You ever heard that term? Guess where that came from? Came from Nicholas. You know why? Because how many times do we see Jesus renaming disciples? Saul, you're going to be Paul. So you know what Nicholas did when he got his own followers? I'm going to give you your own nickname. That's where that term came from. From Nicholas, who fell and no longer had Jesus as his first love, yet claimed he was walking with God and serving God. But you know what else Nicholas said? Nicholas said, hey, listen, these apostles are saying that you got to have all the aspects of your life sexually clean and all. Let me help you. It's okay to swap wives. It's okay to have multiple wives. God allowed it in the Old Testament, not in the New. But Nicholas said it was okay. You're still here. How about a marriage ceremony? What's more holy to God than a marriage ceremony between a husband and wife? But you know what Nicholas actually had them practicing? They were getting drunk at all these marriage feasts because obviously, again, he was mixing all different types of pagan rites and things that were not right and saying it was okay. In the fact that you're a Christian, it doesn't matter. Sound familiar? And he said, hey, I'm glad that you still hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Seven, he who has an ear, talking to us, he who has an ear, let him hear what what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, what are you overcoming here? The temptation to lose Jesus as your first love. Meaning what? I've now allowed somebody else to take his place and deceive me and become more important to me than Jesus. Children, parents, wives, husbands, or your own life. You know how many Christians say, well, I don't have to go to church. Nobody said you had to. You get to. 
But you know what you're doing? You're walking away from Jesus as your first love. To him who overcomes, I'll do what? I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Say hallelujah. So what do we do? One, to not allow Jesus to become now no longer our first love or to even guard against that happening. He told you in verse 5, remember, say remember. Remember Remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. So what are the first works? If you want to write them down, I'll give them to you. You can study this out. Uh, Adam Clark brings this out through the study of the Ephesus church and what the Bible teaches scripturally that we know are basic things that every person who has Jesus as their first love would do. You ready? To remember here means, number one, remember your willing spirit. So in other words, you should come to church because you want to. You listening? You You should want to serve and want to do the things of God because you want to. Right? Just like Jesus. Not my will, Father. Your will be done. Guess what? Jesus wanted to do that. So he tells him here to remember the first works. One, remember your willing spirit. Two, your cheerful self-denial. Your what? Cheerful self-denial. What are we denying? The old self. How are we supposed to do it? Cheerfully. Knowing what? I don't let my old self rule because the results ain't good. God even loves a cheerful giver. So you got to do what? You got to remember your cheerful self-denial. I remember when I became born again and I started denying friendships and I started denying other things I did in my life, going to the bars. I started denying going and drinking. I started denying, uh, obviously, not going to church on Sunday. And I started going to church. I started denying all these other things. I did it because I wanted to. I was excited. I was happy about it when I got born again. I was like, oh, man, Sunday morning, I got to go to church again. That's not cheerful self-denial. How was that? I couldn't wait to get up and go. The third one, also remember your fervor in private prayer. Your fervor in private prayer. In other words, that you truly have a private prayer life and you do it with absolute fervency, meaning that you're truly hot for God and you're excited to spend time with him and talk to him. Most people don't understand. They think prayer is I got to keep talking to God and asking him stuff. No, he talked to him just like a friend. You learn to develop that relationship through the Word of God to fellowship with Him. I'll tell you what, what I'm teaching our guys to do, going through the Bible, reading a chapter a day, you know what that is? You know what that is? That's part of prayer. Because you know what prayer is? It's communication. That's all it is. It's a two-way communication. It's not just get on your knees and just, you know, offer up to God something you have need of. No, prayer is a two-way communication. So he says, you got to remember your fervor in private prayer. You ready for the next one? You got to remember your detachment from the world. I started detaching from the world and the things of the world. I started detaching from, uh, you know, uh, movies that I knew I didn't need to watch. Haven't never gone back. Filled with cuss language and, and nudity and all. I've detached from all of that. I started detaching from things I watched on television that were full with a bunch of garbage that were all going to just impart into me doubt and unbelief, not faith. I started, to, and, and you know what? I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. When I first got born again, I can remember detaching from the world. Last one. And you got to remember your heavenly mindedness. Your heavenly mindedness. Guess what my mind turned to after I got born again? Heaven. The things of God. Guess what I wanted to do? The things of God. That means my focus became different. My focus, as the Colossians says, now that you're born again, what are you supposed to do? Set your mind on things above. 
What did I start doing? Setting my mind on things above. But you know what happens when people slowly allow a disregard for God's word to creep into their life? Guess what they begin to do? They begin to set their minds back on the things of the world. They begin to set their mind back on what they desire in life, what they want to get out of life, even in the sense if it's something they think might be good, but it may not be. Right? So what did they have to do? How can I guard my life against not losing Jesus as my first love? You should remember when you first got born again, if you did it right, guess what you did? You came with a willing spirit. You came with cheerful self-denial. You had fervor in private prayer. Spending time with God and loving that time that you spent with God. You had a detachment from the world and you began to set your mind on the things of God. Heavenly mindedness. And obviously if you take that list and look at it and if you don't consistently do those things with the love and a passion for Jesus, guess what's going to happen? Like the church at Ephesus, you can leave your first love. And if you leave your first love, that means stuff becomes more important. Other people become more important. Stuff starts crowding in. And it can happen so subtly that people don't even realize it. I'll close with this. I was having a conversation with a guy the other day about the very fact God wants you to have a shepherd. Why would Jesus have anointed shepherds if he didn't want you to have one? And this guy said, well, let me tell you something, man. God doesn't want you to have one shepherd. God wants you to have many shepherds. And that's why the term elders in the Bible is in the plural. Now, this is a guy that's never been a pastor, never been in ministry, never been called to ministry. And I just responded and explained. Number one, anything with two heads is a freak. Even a kid at the carnival knows this. Realize God doesn't put elders in the church to pastor the people. There's only one pastor. He's anointed to pastor the people. And now you got elders that are supposed to be pastoring them? No. Elders that are a help to the pastor to love on the people. Right? Where if all of a sudden I can't be there to pray for somebody, they can pray with them. But they're not to pastor them. You know what gets uh, elders in trouble? When they start trying to play pastor. You know why? They're not anointed to be a pastor. I went through all this. I explained all this. Do you think he received that with loving correction? No. He immediately responds back and starts saying, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe this. And da, 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 da. And I said, well, man, you can believe whatever you want. I included in that statement, actually, I included in that statement about the spiritual fathers that we've been connected with directly or through our pastor. John Osteen, Lester Summerall, all these guys that tell you what I'm teaching. Lester Summerall, Kenneth Hagin, uh, Roy Hicks. And he responds back and he said, all you're doing is you're telling me of some quote-unquote watered down, blame it, uh, uh, claim it and blame, uh, claim, uh, blab it and grab it, uh, uh, you know, claim it and, and, and whatever. All these statements they make. Why can I not think of that statement? What do they say? Name and claim it. Name and claim it. You're going to tell me these watered down televangelists are the ones that I should be listening to and you want me to believe them? I ain't got, well, guess what he's doing? He's slandering these guys. He don't even know them. Right. Now, let me help you. Jesus sent his first love and or he's deceived. Because you wouldn't be saying that about somebody you don't know. Right? right? Well, guess how easy it is to not even realize that you're somebody who would say that Jesus is your first love, but you certainly aren't living like Jesus. Right? If he's your first love, you're a disciple. And if you're a disciple, what do you sound like? What do you look like? Him. Like him. And you know, even if you don't totally understand something about Scripture as it relates to a pastor, which is really basic in Scripture, I said, this isn't even a debatable issue. I can show you all kinds of verses that prove this. 
But the point is, a lot of times people think Jesus is their first love and don't realize other things are more important, including, more pe- uh, including other people. So guard your heart against these very aspects of what we recognize, of what we first did when we got born again, that you don't drift away from those and you can keep yourself from losing Jesus as your first love. We don't want to become a part of the group of Matthew 24 that through lawlessness, our love for Jesus grows cold. Any amens on that? Amen. Amen. Stand your feet. We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.